This podcast covers a murder that occurred in 1983. It is a true story, and while I have relied heavily on police reports and public documents, the opinions of the host and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. The credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. As memorable events in small towns go, the brutal murder of a young woman in the middle of the day where she worked was a nasty scab on the town's history that had never fully healed. It was a scab that had rarely even been picked at in the decades that had passed, but that scab was about to get ripped clean off. Neither the county or the city reports had ever been released. So I put together a packet of facts for every city council member, as well as Chief Davis, and brought along a couple extra for the press. As I spoke, they were all looking from me to the copies of police report pages that I had provided them, and by the looks on their faces, some of this was new and very compelling information for them, many of whom had lived in this community for all of their lives. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? Hey, everybody seems to be totally unanimous here. That's a good sign. <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Today I'm asking for a copy of the initial report generated by Reed City Police Department's law enforcement officers regarding the murder of Jeanette Robertson in the Gamble store on January 19, 1983. In the packet provided, I included three pages from the Michigan State Police report so you can see Detective Pratt's observations regarding which officers were present when he arrived on scene. This information pertains to my appeal. The Michigan State Police report begins when Detective Pratt arrives on scene. It is what occurred prior to his arrival that I believe is important to the public's understanding of how this scene was handled and goes straight to the heart of what the Freedom of Information Act is intended to do which is to provide information that contributes significantly to the public's understanding of the operations of government. In this case, it relates to how a crime scene was handled by the Reed City Police Department in 1983. Knowing whether or not law enforcement officers did their job properly should have nothing to do with evidence or compromising the case. The public is entitled to know things like what time officers arrived at a crime scene, anyone they may have called to a scene, 
and how they manage the scene itself. There are some crucial questions about what was reported to Detective Pratt by first responders, as well as what he encountered when he arrived. The initial report, made by the Reed City officers, is the only place to learn the details of their actions and observations prior to Detective Pratt arriving on scene. Here are some concerns. Why was the county prosecutor called to the scene by one of the first responders before the arrival of the detective? Who called him and why? Why was an officer who should have been suspended helping to process the scene? And finally, Chief Philip Rathbun was the supervisor of the first responders and as such, ultimately responsible for their activity. If he entered a crime scene and found anything of concern regarding his employees, the public has a right to know this. They have a right to know why the police chief showed up, quote, entered the immediate area where the victim was found, end quote, according to the Michigan State Police report, and then left sometime prior to when Detective Pratt arrived. I'd like to ask Chief Davis a hypothetical question, and he is under no obligation to respond. It is merely for the purposes of an illustration. Chief Davis. If my brutalized body was found in Gary Smith's basement over at the Reed City Hardware Store, and you were called to the scene, and on arriving you found what you now know, based on having seen crime scene photos, was a pretty horrific scene. If you entered that scene as the chief of police and saw that, would there be any situation under which you could conceive of leaving that scene, short of becoming ill yourself, before the detective assigned to the case had arrived? Jeanette's daughter deserves to know if anything happened at that crime scene, or with the evidence during this time, that could ultimately lead to this case never being brought to trial. The public perception was always that Chief Rathbun was out of town when this murder occurred. That's what the public was told. In fact, in a Cadillac News article published on January 19, 2010, the 27th anniversary of Jeanette's death, Chief Rathbun stated that he was out of town when this murder happened. Well, he couldn't have been too far out of town if he got down to the gamble store and left before Detective Pratt arrived, around 4.30, according to him. Why would Chief Rathbun say that, some three decades later? Technically, I guess he could have been doing something just outside the city limits, but apparently he wasn't far enough away that he couldn't get to the crime scene before the detective assigned to the case did. Publicly saying he was out of town gives an impression that is patently false. Someone called him. I think Jeanette's daughter has a right to know who that was and why the police chief left her mother's body in the care of patrolmen and, presumably, the county officers who arrived shortly thereafter, before the state police detective arrived. Did Chief Rathman make sure the immediate area where the body was found was secured from foot traffic before he left? Or was that task left to someone else? When did the prosecutor arrive, and who summoned him? And why? Was that standard operating procedure in 1980? We know the police chief left the scene before Detective Pratt arrived because on page three of the Michigan State Police report, it is noted that, quote, 
After being admitted to the secure Gamble store, Reed City police officers Larry Finkbeiner, Michael Primo, and Theodore Platts were recognized along with Sheriff David Needham, Under Sheriff Thomas Detloff, Detective Sergeant James Southworth, and Deputies Terry Oyster and Thomas Kingsbury of the Osceola County Sheriff's Department. It does not say that Detective Pratt encountered Chief Rathbun when he arrived, yet on page four of the report, he writes, It was learned through investigation that the following people had entered the immediate area of where the victim was found at least once and some more than one time. John Ingalls, the store manager, David Ingalls, the store owner, Thomas Hawkins, a store patron, Dr. Earl Williams, medical examiner, and Chief Philip Rathbun of the Reed City Police Department. I would challenge that the only way releasing this report could compromise or interfere with any ongoing investigation is if one of the officers in question was in some way involved in the murder of Jeanette Robertson. Anything short of that is an excuse. Jeanette's family and friends, as well as Reed City residents, deserve to know if the actions of law enforcement officers compromise the integrity of this case. There is nothing about the handling of a scene by the responding officers and their comings and goings that should ever be held back from public scrutiny. Police officers promise to protect and serve the community, and there is a public trust attached to their duty that can only be attained by their actions being transparent and above reproach. I have spoken to a great many people in the year that I've been researching this story, people who were there that day, people who are physically pained to talk about it. The perception of the majority I have spoken to is that law enforcement was in some way involved in a cover-up. I don't necessarily think that was the case, but I didn't live here at the time, so I'm not as close to it as the people who grew up here are. What I do know is this. When a public entity withholds information, this leaves a reasonable person's mind to wonder if, in fact, something is being covered up. Absent facts, the entity responsible for that kind of public perception is the one who decides to withhold the record in the first place. The law is very specific here. While some parts of that document may be excludable for the reasons set forth by the denial, the report cannot be held back in its entirety without specificity regarding how it would interfere with any ongoing investigation. Jeanette Robertson lived in this town just under two years, and that's another overriding theme I've heard over and over from the folks who were born and raised here. It's not solved because she's not from Reed City. Someone actually said that to me. A long-standing Reed City citizen told me her name wasn't important enough. I don't believe that. I know too many good folks who live here, but that is the perception you are dealing with, and public perception is what this FOIA appeal is about. Reed City wants this case solved. I want this case solved. I know Chief Davis would like to see this case solved. I know at some point, Jeanette's family should get justice for their girl. Her mother, Marion Fisher, was Reed City's clerk and treasurer for many years. It was a position she held when her daughter was murdered so brutally. She passed on without knowing why, and I'm not sure there will ever be justice for that. I want you to think about that when you deliberate. 
Put Yourself in the Place of Marion Fisher, of Alvin Robertson, of Jennifer Riles, Jeanette's daughter. I was in contact with Jennifer yesterday and asked her if there was anything she wanted me to pass along to you, and this is what she said. I just want to say that if it was their mother, sister, or daughter, they would want to know who and why. They would want closure. Anything they can do that will help solve my mother's murder would be greatly appreciated. Listen, she didn't ask you to give me the report. She doesn't care about these technicalities. This is her mother. She wants your help. She wants each and every one of you to do whatever you can do to help her mother get justice. You think about that. More than 30 years without justice for a member of your family. We are already in the negative integers as far as justice is concerned in this case. Let's not add insult to injury by keeping information from the public in perpetuity under the vague premise that somehow knowing how law enforcement officers did their job over 30 years ago could in any way interfere with an ongoing law enforcement proceeding. To quote the court in its ruling from the Evening News Association versus City of Troy about revealing witness names and partial statements, this could conceivably inflame the public clause is not only speculation, but smacks of public censorship, which would not appear to be the purpose of the Freedom of Information Act. In order to avail yourselves of the FOIA exemption listed on the denial, which has to do with how a record becoming public would interfere with law enforcement proceedings, the key word is would. The Supreme Court of Michigan has spoken very clearly on this issue, and the burden is on the withholder of the information to prove that making certain records public would interfere with law enforcement proceedings. Not might, not possibly, not could, but would. Chief Davis denied my request for the initial report on the basis that it contained, quote, potentially distinguishing information regarding characteristics of the crime scene and victim. These items and the information they might divulge may compromise the Michigan State Police's open, ongoing investigation. Potentially, might, may, in order for the council to withhold it, the council must show how releasing the report would interfere, not potentially, not might, not may. And this showing must be done with specificity. The core purpose of the Freedom of Information Act is to provide information that contributes significantly to the public's understanding of the operations of government. This report that Reed City maintains, which I am requesting, is apparently the only record of what happened before Detective Pratt and the Michigan State Police arrived, and thus became the next recorder of record on this matter. The people have a strong interest in knowing how those who were sworn to protect and serve handled the crime scene in an extraordinarily brutal murder that occurred within a mile of three different law enforcement entities in the middle of the day. A crime that over three decades later is still unsolved. If the council decides to deny my request, I would ask to be provided in writing how denying this report 
would compromise any ongoing investigation. I would further request written recourse as far as court appeal, which I will be inclined to do if the request is denied. I want to thank the council for your time and would be happy to answer any questions you may have. I won that appeal and I got those reports, although very heavily redacted. And I got them because the questions I was asking were questions that the community deserved answers to. When denying reports, the governing body must weigh the right of the public to know versus how the release of that information will impact a case. Essentially, the need to know information in this case was that certain people, including the police chief, were at the scene, particularly when he had publicly distanced himself from that scene in multiple interviews over the years with journalists, stating that he had been out of town. I wanted to know why. One thing that happened subsequent to this council meeting and after I won the appeal was that I was contacted by the city lawyer and told that while they were getting my city documents prepared, they had also obtained a copy of the Osceola County Sheriff's Department first responders report. I had twice requested that report and been denied and told that it did not exist. I told him yes, I would like that report as well and asked who turned it over to him. I never got an answer to that. Something else that was in the packet that I had submitted to the city council members was an allegation that I had heard over and over. The county prosecutor had been called to the scene, quote, to see if the sight of a dead body would freak him out. I thought maybe it was just gossip until I spoke to Prosecutor Talaski, and he confirmed that he had no idea why they had called him there that day, but he had certainly not been pleased with what he found. In his words, the entire Reed CDPD and most of Osceola County Sheriff's Department was standing there staring at her body. He went further to say, when I asked if anyone had called Detective Pratt, someone in that crowd said, why? Tulaski said his response was, have any of you ever handled a homicide scene? That why segues into the next issue, and that involves the tensions between the law enforcement departments at the time, and the fact that there may have been a bit of a power struggle over who would take lead on the case. When I spoke to Lauren Thorson, who handled the crime scene evidence collection, the picture he painted didn't make me feel any better. He said he arrived later, around 5.30. He had to come from Kalkaska over an hour and a half after Jeanette's body was found. And when he entered, was immediately approached by City Officer Theodore Platts, the officer who should have been suspended at the time. And it was he who led Thorson down to the basement and began pointing out items of note. So my first concern is, why is the only officer on scene that's actually suspended at the time 
showing the evidence technician around the crime scene. Did his police chief see him when he showed up before he left? It seems to me that it's a defense attorney's dream to have people who shouldn't be at a scene wandering around the body, possibly contaminating it with their prints and fibers. I'm not sure I understand why neither the head of the city police department or the county sheriff's department never ordered the suspended officer to leave the homicide scene. Not to mention controlled the steady stream of officers milling around downstairs, as Talaski said was the case when he arrived. Here is what Gary McGee remembers from that day. He was one of the responding EMTs. When we pulled up, I'm pretty sure in thinking that we didn't even have a parking. We wouldn't. We parked right in the middle of the street. There, the park. There was no parking spot. We didn't really? like pull into. We didn't pull into an angle parking spot. We pulled up and probably blocked. I think it's up the street. I can't. I can't remember. I can't remember if it's up the street or whatever. But we yeah, just pull up and and we parked there and probably blocked whoever was parked there. They couldn't get away, but. I had never been in the basement before mm-hmm. at right. Gambles. Larry had been lived there all his life. He, if they told him it was in the back room of the Gambles, he would know where the back room of the Gambles. I had never been down there, so yeah, it, was, it didn't yeah. didn't strike me as funny that he knew where the body was. And I think he got there a couple minutes before you, so he they would have said it's down there. He might have even ran down there real quick once and saw it, and then come back up and got you. There's yeah, there's certainly yeah. enough time for that. If you figure you're walking in a store, you come down the main aisle, right. you turn right, and then you walk, and then you do another hard right, and you go down the steps. That's right, and that was right next to the register, the center of the store right. where there was a register. Yep. Exactly. So then you go down the steps, uh-huh. and there's a wall on my left. Right. This is what this is what I remember, and it seems like there was a cash register on the right, yep. and then you walk. And you walk maybe, well, I don't know, maybe half the distance of the store. Mm-hmm. Then you kind of angle to the right a little bit, and then there's a doorway in front of you. Okay. Then you walk through that doorway, and then... When you walk through that doorway, what do you see immediately when you're standing just at that in the doorway? I don't... Doorway? I, I didn't. I turned to the left. Larry Finkmeyer was in front of me, so I, he's leading right. me to where the person is. Yeah. So I just turned to my left, and there she lay. So you didn't pass the fish tanks to get into the door? I don't know what was on. I don't know about fish tanks. I, I remember bird squawking. I would say actual time of death was within three to four. Yeah. They, I don't think that I don't think that her heart had actually stopped more than. A uh, half hour before we found her. I don't know when it when it when, I don't know when it happened, but I'm saying I don't think her heart actually stopped within within a half hour before we right. found her. Right. The death certificate says three. Um, yeah, about it, hour. Okay. All right. Yep. Okay. And yes, they were, yes. and in the newspaper they were saying between two and four. And I know it's a, okay. not an exact science, obviously. No. So no. We're talking between two and four is when it happened. There were yeah. customers uh, down there. In that time period, the, the two ladies that came to buy, to buy stuff that I've talked to, Jan and Venus, they were down there with two little kids. So they were down there for a while. They were the ones that bought the pet supplies that they were putting the plea out for in the newspaper, and then they went in and talked to state police. They didn't see anything. They didn't hear anything. One of them looked um, in that, behind that tarp and didn't see anything. They were walking around. The kids were looking. They saw no blood. Nobody saw that blood. So 
that's another thing, that I, the mystery blood that happened. How did nobody see that blood? The blood in question was a spot on the floor that Officer Finkbeiner walked Gary McGee directly through when he led him down into the basement. Imagine thinking you're responding to a heart attack and finding a partially clad female laying in a pool of blood, so brutalized, her face has been described as beaten beyond recognition. It was so unexpected, so horrifying, that Gary's partner was unable to assist him that day. The spot of blood on the floor was located maybe eight to ten feet outside the entrance to the back room through which Gary had entered. He described it as about the size of a piece of bread and closer to the entrance to the back room than to the stairway. He didn't see the blood until he was leaving the back room to go back upstairs. At that point, he believed the initial assault may have occurred outside the back room where she was found, in the pet department, and that she had been dragged or otherwise moved to where her body would eventually be discovered. Jeanette had a number of wounds all over her body, and multiple weapons were used to inflict them. It is not necessary to your understanding of the event that you know specifically what weapons were used, and police do not want that information out there. That precludes me from speculating about the order in which those injuries were sustained, other than to say that there are clear indications that she did not die quickly. The wounds that would prove fatal occurred later in the attack, based on blood evidence, and she may have been back there with him for some period of time, perhaps in between customers. That fact alone haunts me, thinking about what her last moments could have been, how aware she was of what was happening, how much time did she have to be afraid before she lost consciousness, and did she have to endure the torture of hearing muted conversations and footsteps coming from upstairs, knowing that help was just mere steps away. I don't think that she died right away, um, because when somebody dies right away, their wounds don't bleed. Because the heart yes. stops pumping, the heart yeah. stops pumping, and they don't bleed. I know. She was alive. We know. We understand. Why yeah. do you think we can't give this up? Because it's horrifying. It's fucking, yeah. I, I mean, I start crying half the time when I think about it. It's awful. Yeah. I mean, I have yeah. to assume she was out for some of that. You would pass out. That pain. I hope. I hope. Yes. I hope. I hope so you too. just got. You. You just have to hope as a human being that she didn't. She didn't yeah. know that was happening to her. I cannot fathom how the perpetrator felt so comfortable back there for that long, unless he was familiar enough with the comings and goings of the store that he knew it rarely got busy enough that they would be interrupted. He also knew that he'd be able to hear anyone coming down the stairs, and see them through the glass tanks from the back room, both of which I can personally attest to, having been down in that basement and in the back room. If Jeanette's killer was that unknown dark-haired man with glasses who had crossed the barrier into the back room in the days leading up to her murder, the one making her uncomfortable enough to tell people about him, he may have known what areas of that back room he could drag her to, so that anyone in the pet department wouldn't see them. The reason that I believe it's important for the public to understand that this altercation likely began in the pet department itself, rather than the back room, is that, if that is the case, someone may have seen something that they did not know was important at the time, because so much of the coverage of this case has revolved around her dying in that back room. 
but someone could have seen a man talking to her that day and not realized he could have been the killer, especially if Jeanette was smiling at him, like she generally did, being her normal, cheerful self, kind to everyone. The public and people with possible information should know that the person who attacked her probably began that attack right there in the pet department. It appears that an impulsive instant fit of rage precipitated what was to follow. But before the rage, were they just talking? Had he been in the store for long before the initial attack? Maybe trying to chatter up? On February 10, 1983, the Osceola County Herald ran an article titled murdered clerk had received calls. According to the story, Osceola County officials had discovered a new development the previous week, that Jeanette had allegedly received obscene phone calls and had received two calls in which an individual hung up the phone without speaking the day before she was murdered. These calls coupled with the unknown man coming in and making her uncomfortable before the murder, certainly suggest that it's a possibility Jeanette had someone who was obsessed with her for whatever reason, and if he was coming into the store in the middle of the day and the days leading up to the murder, he was someone who wasn't working at those times. It should be noted that someone she worked with would have been around her a lot, so you could see how that could possibly give rise to an obsession. Those sorts of things happen all the time in the workplace. But that would mean the other man, the customer coming in and making her uncomfortable, was an unrelated obsessive male. And that theory requires quite a suspension of disbelief, in my opinion. One would then have to accept that Jeanette had multiple people obsessed with her at the time she was murdered. It's not impossible. It just doesn't seem probable to me. I once heard someone say, homicides are usually just what they look like. What this looks like to my untrained eye is that Jeanette had herself a stalker who'd become obsessed with her for reasons unknown. Maybe he was attracted to her and mistook her kindness for interest. Maybe he didn't care one way or another whether she was interested or not. His interest in her was all that mattered. Whatever the case, whatever the killer felt or didn't feel about Jeanette, something made him lash out so viciously on January 19, 1983. But he didn't just lash out and leave. He lashed out impulsively, and instead of getting out of there, he dragged her into the back room and added insult to injury over and over and over again, eventually leaving her partially dressed, bloody, and shoved beneath a birdcage in the back room on a dirty floor. I don't think they got the severity of her injury, the cross, to the public. And if they had, 
people might have been horrified enough to be looking at their husbands and fathers and brothers and what the hell, who did this? Obviously, they can't talk about the wounds, but someone should have gotten up to a goddamn microphone. It's right now but i'm sorry but you're right oh. you you're exactly right and you got to imagine i'm a 22 year old new paramedic living in a small town and walk into what i saw and it just like i even stopped the door and went holy shit what? i don't know how you handle that scene with what you saw i mean i don't know i don't I don't know. I don't know how any – that's why I, I try to give some flack to the first responders because that's not something you're supposed to see. Well, you know. but it, it, Any human it, being it, is not supposed it, to see that. No, no, and you know what? You can't – and don't take this wrong. You can't personalize it, and if we personalized every call we had, um, I would be a goddamn mess, and I wouldn't have been in this business this long. Stay tuned.